I remember waking up in the morning and, you know, my, it'd be my father and myself over breakfast, reading the paper and I'd be working back to front. So the sports section first. And after the sports section was the uh, share prices, which were on a Ooh. single sheet. And what, what intrigued me were there were football teams on those share prices. So Manchester United, Aston Villa. And I'm like, this isn't the league table. This is not the results from the weekend. This isn't the fixture list. The, what are these numbers? What does this all mean? I don't understand how on a daily basis there can be an up or a down against these. Is this a, you know, is this something that we're going to think about in terms of the end position? And Today's successful revenue leaders once started their careers just like you and I. They faced the challenges that their careers brought to them, they rose to the occasion, and became the leaders that we admire today. Join me as we explore the skills and stories that make a great leader with a pinch of vulnerability. Hello and welcome to Sales Therapy. I'm your host, Alper Yurder. Grab a chair. This is your exclusive invitation to the therapy room as leaders are going to be sharing their career-defining moments, their secret tips and tricks in their arsenal towards success. And I promise we'll always end on a positive note. So today in the therapy chair, I have Adam Kay, CRO of Playroll, the global workforce platform and one of the early users of Flowlane, their sales development and partnerships teams too. Adam is a lawyer by education, but has been spending the last 15 years or so of his career in commercial leadership roles, from running the EMEA and global sales orgs at ConverSocial and Shoutlet, to building the global sales organization at Paddle, um, we all know, and more recently as CRO. I'm sure he'll have many stories to tell us. We'll talk about his success, the joy, the pain, and the journey. Uh, welcome to Sales Therapy, Adam. How are you feeling today? I'm great. Thank you for the very kind and complimentary introduction. Great to be here. Okay, I'm glad to hear that. These intros, I try to keep them... Like when I have people like you, it's like I have to mention everything, but I have to keep it concise. But anything I missed there you would like to add? No, no, no. I guess in my head it was just worryingly sounding like an obituary more than anything. But uh, oh. I, think I appreciate. It. <laughs> yeah, we'll have we'll all have one of those. Hopefully, we get we get so close that I get to do your obituary too. <laughs> okay, let's go into it. So, any good therapist starts with childhood and growing up, Adam. And this is a tradition here. We love understanding how your growing up experience shaped your values, the person you are today. So, can you tell us you're a Londoner? So, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I consider my background to be relatively uneventful. I think that's a positive in, in today's world. I'm very close with my parents and my family. I grew up in, in North London, just a stone's throw away from the what used to be the, uh, the the Twin Towers at Wembley Stadium that subsequently became the Arch. And of course, football mad. Everything was football in my life. Football, 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 uh -huh. maybe a bit of computer gaming as well. And I think perhaps that was kind of recurring memory of my childhood is just being out in the garden, kind of kicking a ball against trees, a goal, my sisters, whoever would really try and stand in the way. Um, <laughs> and actually, perhaps was also my segue of interest into business because I, I remember waking up in the morning and, you know, my, it'd be my father and myself over breakfast, reading the paper and I'd be working back to front, so the sports section first. And after the sports section was the uh, share prices, which were on a Ooh. single sheet. And what, what intrigued me were there were football teams on those share prices, so Manchester United, Aston Villa, and I'm like, this isn't the league table. This is not the results from the weekend. This isn't the fixture list. What are these numbers? What does this all mean? I don't understand how on a daily basis there can be an up or a down against these. Is this a, you know, is this something that we're going to think about in terms of the end position? And from there on in, I, it actually kind of captured me in terms of ownership. How can a company be owned? What is a company? What is a wow. share? How can that oh, change wow. price? And, and, and really, that was my trigger into the, into the world of business. Then. How old were you when this was happening? I was about nine or 10 years old. 
So your introduction to capitalism at the age of nine or ten. Wonderful. <laughs> Intro introduction to capitalism. My, my father is an accountant and at the same time into socialism and taught me all about taxes and how nothing nothing oh. comes for free and how we must give back as well. So, um, mm. yeah, I think it was a very balanced upbringing, but yeah, just a, a natural curiosity initially kind of stemming from my love of, of sports and in particular football, but just kind of exploding out from there. Okay. Some of my guests have that. What did you, uh, the, the football analogy, did you ever want to be a coach as well? In football, no. I was, I was I, well, to, to talk about it in the past tense is probably still wrong. I still feel that one day a, a scout will come and spot me. I'm 42 oh, years good. old and I appreciate You're still it. young. Yeah, yeah you're I, still, you still have time. <laughs> but I, I refuse to stop dreaming. So if anyone's out good. there and thinking about going up on their dreams, don't, because it may still happen for me and it will certainly happen for you. Okay, fine. Maybe this is going to be your life-changing moment on sales therapy where you get discovered. <laughs> I play football almost as well as I talk. It's the straight male child dream to become the football athlete and manager. And Okay, I hope it comes real for you. Uh, how many siblings you said you had? You had sisters? I have two, I have two sisters and I'm, I'm sandwiched right in the middle between them two from an age perspective. Oh, how was that? Um, it was great. I mean, you know, it was very two years apart between all of us. The story goes, I don't really remember it, that well, when my mother was pregnant with my younger sister, I was adamant that it was going to be, be a boy, To the so much so to the extent that <laughs> when my sister was born, I refused to accept that she wasn't a boy. Um, and the, the story goes, I, I, was, I was about three years old. She must have been one. I, one early one Saturday morning, I pulled her out of her cot and decided to cut her hair, thinking that will make her a boy. Um, so appreciate how kind of unpolitically correct this talking is in today's world, but it, it was so much simpler then. Um, at least it was kind of immortalized the experience in the fact that we were having professional family photographs taken the next day and bless my sister's got this kind of wonderful zigzag haircut. I guess they call it karma though, looking at my hairline now, that must have been some sort of kind of cosmic <laughs> payback there for me for messing with her hair ahead of the professional photos there. So we already started talking a little bit about the very, very early <laughs> days of the career, but... Can you share with us the, the journey from being that boy um, to your first job, your first sales role, maybe? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess in, in between that and my first sales job was actually a career. Well, not a career is probably an, an over, overstatement, a stint in law. Stint, yeah. um, actually, mm -hmm. I got to the end of university and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I, I think like most people, you know, unless you go into university saying I'm going to be a vet or a dentist or a doctor, I didn't know. I did a, a generic course called management. Uh, speaking very candidly and, and vulnerably, I still don't really know what it was about, um, but I, I managed to get through it. And I just decided to apply across the boards to kind of well-respected jobs, mm -hmm. graduate roles across kind of industry, banking, management, consultancy, accounting law. And I just said, I'll leave it up to fate. Whatever I'm offered first, I will take. Oh, um, wow. Because I, I didn't know. Um, and thankfully, a, a very, very large law firm, I still think it must have been a mistake, offered me an interview, um, which was wonderful and, and turned out into a job. So I, I started working at what's called a, a magic, magic Circle Law Firm, yeah. one of the largest law firms. Which one was it? Uh, it was a firm called Linklaters. So uh, okay, one of the four, right? Uh, I think they were number two at the time. They must have okay. gone down. But uh, yes. And, you know, joined a cohort of trainees. I had to do two more years study after university to do a law conversion and then my professional legal exams. And then did two years training at Linklaters in six month rotations in different departments. I'd love to say it was the most positive experience of my life, but I, I really didn't enjoy it. And 
I think it was compounded by the fact that people were telling me just how lucky I am to have been there. People doing kind of summer placements as they're growing up and still not getting a job. And, you know, it's, it's like, did just the deals that I'm working on or in the financial times the next day. And, you know, for a first job being paid an extortionate amount of money with this wonderful trajectory in front of me. And I just didn't get it. I didn't mm. get what the So they were like, be, gr be grateful. You are ungrateful. Be grateful, get your head down, you'll, you'll learn to like it. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's got security and, and kind of fortune at the end of it. And, mm. and you know, of course, you know, again, fast forwards 15, 20 years, I appreciate the value of, of earning well. It is clearly the primary reason we all go to work. And I still believe that every single salesperson is motivated by financial reward amongst other things. But it wasn't enough for me. And I, I kind of got to the point at the end where I'm like, I don't want to spend the rest of my life doing this, I, I think I was probably helped by the fact that the global credit crunch happened around that time <laughs> as well. Again, I know that sounds like quite a, a perverse statement, but I remember seeing my mentors in, in the firm who were, you know, really pushing themselves for partnership, working very, very hard, long hours, etc., and ultimately leaving with a cardboard box at the end of it because that department was, was cutting back. And so I kind of came to this realization that if you're going to be spending the majority of your waking life committed to a career, you might as well be doing something you enjoy because you never okay. know what's going to come out at the end of it. And so I decided actually, you know, as I said, my father was an accountant. He said, go, go train to be an auditor, go train to be an accountant. I got a job to train again at PwC, um, which, you know, was also one of the most respected accounting firms. And I decided to take a little break between the two and thought, well, I don't know what I want to do still. I've, you know, I've, I've no idea what I'm going to end up doing, but there is a skill that I knew I needed to learn or have exposure How to. How old were you by then? I was 26 at the time. Oh, it's still very young. Yeah. I was still very young, but I was married, had a child on the way. So it oh, wasn't wow. just about living up and air. I had ah. responsibilities and I had okay. to learn. Ah. Um, where mm. It was a dirty word. It wasn't yeah, a career yeah. that people really thought about. <laughs> Um, SAS was not a thing yet, neither were any of the bubbles that came after that. And so, you know, again, when I told my grandmother that I'm leaving a corporate law to become a salesman, you know, she, she, she scolded me. She thought, yeah, you're going to call me in the evening to sell me insurance or knock on my door to sell me knives. B2B sales, just not a thing. But I wanted to acquire this skill because I knew whatever I ended up doing, law, accountancy, consulting, entrepreneurial sales was a skill that I needed to acquire. So I actually found a graduate sales role for a SaaS company. I thought it was something to do with the armed forces. I didn't know what SaaS was, um, but it turns out it's not the uh, special airborne service. It is, you know, software as a service. And I, I believe I was working for one of the first SaaS businesses in the UK, um, which is a company called Meltwater, um, now mm -hmm. a very, very large, successful public company and selling media monitoring or online online monitoring for, for PR and communications professionals, uh, reputation mm. management. I'll pause you there because before we go into the detail of that, there's like two things which, which I completely agree with. Well, sales being a dirty word, which I always talk about. I made the transition from consultancy to sales and all my friends were like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> it's not even respect. Yeah. Are you just going to be a sales guy? And, and the yeah. second thing about, you know, that, that age thing. And um, I see a lot of people now, obviously in Flola, we have a lot of Gen Z employees, P people, especially in my marketing team, they're, they're quite young. Some of them are doing it as their first job, etc. And I think people join the workforce quite younger than they used to, or at, at least on, on average. I think in the UK, it's always been that way. 
but also in other places in the world that's starting. Like Germany is traditionally like late bloomer. You do your, you know, travel the world and then go back to work. But a lot of people yeah. are feeling the pressure to join uh, work earlier and earlier. Maybe it's a, a cost of yeah. living crisis I, thing. Side maybe note. it's cost of living. I, I think, again, from my experience, and again, university, I thankfully were in a position to be able to afford it, my family, but it was never, it was never a conversation. It was mm. always an inevitable. Just my do it. Were good enough. <laughs> it was, you have to work hard at school so you can get into university and you have to work hard at university so you can get a good job. Like it, it, it just wasn't kind of considered to go a different route. I have since, and I'd argue that some of the best commercial minds, salespeople that I have worked with have not gone to university, have gone straight mm. from school to, uni- to, 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 to working um, and are highly successful people, um, you know, C-level, VP level, even, even kind of uh, just AEs who've kind of stayed in an IC role for the rest of their lives and just taking home enormous pay packets. Universities have no bearing on on their kind so of what, career. So, what do they have that makes them successful? I think kind of commercial instinct, and I, I'm still unsure if this can be taught or if this is innate. Naturally, <laughs> yeah. if it's art or science. <laughs> yeah, I think they have focus and ambition. You know, the opposite of which is entitlement. You know, these are people who want to prove themselves. I guess, you know, they do feel they are less sophisticated, intelligent, have achieved less as a result of not going to university and therefore feel they need to prove more. I feel that is a ridiculous statement, but it's easy for me to judge having been to university. But, um, you know, that, that I think it creates this drive on them to prove success. And I think ultimately they are relationship builders, which is what sales always comes back down to. Call me old fashioned, but people buy from people. Um, mm-hmm. And so being able to build relationships, authentic relationships and understand the prospect again, you don't need to go to university to learn how to do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, call me psychologically distorted, but I always take the drive from the need to be better and with a pinch of salt, of course, um, over the feeling of entitlement. So I'll, I'll take I'm, I'm one of those. I try to do the work yeah. to feel enough yeah. and whatever. But You know what? The opposite is much worse. In, in my, my lifetime of my career, I've seen uh, people with a feeling of, oh, it's just okay. No, you don't get too far. Of course, you need a healthy balance where anybody will say, but. Of course. But again, it reminds, even, even as we were talking before this started, talking about kind of my journey and, and, and giving advice to people on who want to get there. I'm like, get where? I, I haven't got anywhere. Um, I'm still the same guy who is trying to figure it out. I have a different responsibility and a different job now, but I haven't achieved more than anyone else or I haven't done anything more than anyone else. I'm just, this is my role now. And every single role, every single day. What do you mean you haven't achieved? What do you mean by that? Let's, let's unwrap that. Like you are the CEO of of a very successful company. You were, you know, in the SaaS, uh, very competitive market for 10 years. You were at Pedal, this, that. Like, what do you mean you haven't achieved? Yeah. Yeah. And when I see it on paper, I'm like, wow. Uh, let's take an example. When I when I stepped off the journey at Paddle, which mm. I decided to do in uh, the summer, late summer of 2022, I'd been there four years, fully vested, yada, yada. You know, I'd, I'd learned my niche. And I, you know, if I am successful in a role, I, I stop enjoying it because I'm successful and we've grown the company and I prefer early stage small businesses. First of all, I'm sorry for you, but yeah, let's go on. <laughs> <laughs> You can't just enjoy the comfortable life of, you know, being in a grown-up company. You just have to torture yourself again. Punishment. But I think that's part of it, is that every day I want to feel like it's a fresh new challenge and it's Mm -hmm. an existential one 
that we may not be here tomorrow. And that's why I, I constantly feel like we've not achieved, or I've not achieved anything. And, and Paddle particularly, we grew you know, from sub five to north of, of 80 million in four years, several rounds of funding, you know, huge, huge growth, very exciting. But it never felt like it when we were doing it. Only when I stopped and I looked back and I'm like, wow, <laughs> what did we achieve? Wow. And it, it always felt like everything was about to fall apart. Hey, that's I, I love that feeling. That's what kind of gives me adrenaline. That's what gives me kind of drive. But it's also kind of, I think it's quite grounding to say, you haven't done anything. You haven't done anything yet, right? And, and you know, for me, I don't think that will ever end. It drives me forward. I've learned to balance that with my life. And there have been times where that feeling of not achieving anything has overwhelmed me personally and mentally. Um, mm -hmm. And I've had to kind of work at that as well to say, it's okay. It's okay to feel like that. Yeah, I mean, interviewing so many CROs now, I don't know how many I've done in the past two years and now with the podcast, a very common thread is, is, is so interesting. We look as outsiders, the people who are successful, and we think, wow, like they've achieved so much. They're like, you know, this guy, that girl, you know, big, big, big shots and etc. And almost all of them exclusively say, during the time it didn't feel that way. You know, when I was going through that journey, it was like, not enough. We have to do more. Achieve, achieve, achieve. And very yeah. few were taking stock on what they are doing and feeling like they were becoming that person who is doing a lot, which is very fascinating to me. I wonder why that is. Well, it's, it's less about status and title and bank balance, if I'm being honest. And, and again, my bank balance does motivate me. It's an ambition of mine. Of um, course. But actually, that, that kind of sense of satisfaction is when I pay for a family holiday, when mm -hmm. I'm paying the mortgage. It sounds ridiculous because it's what most people do. Um, and naturally, people have different kind of means in terms of, well, how, how big is their budget for a holiday or the house, whatever it might be. But that's my sense of achievement, that mm -hmm. I've been able to do this without any help or support or leveraging any kind of, you know, fam family contacts. It's off my own back and, and merits that I've been able to do this, not the fact that I've achieved a C-level title. For me, the title is, you know, an SDR is probably more important than I am. They have a direct fingerprint on the revenue they generate. Do I? No, I'm not selling. I'm not calling people. I'm not creating meetings anymore. Um, so for me, my, my job is to kind of, yes, build the strategy and orchestrate things in the past, but that's my job and I, I haven't done it yet. So, um, you know, that, that's why, again, it's, it's, is it imposter syndrome? Is it just my view of the world? But it's, I always feel like there's a bigger mountain to climb next than anything I've achieved. Mm. Okay, I think a health also that is needed. I'm going to take a different course now, not a different course, but expand on the business side of things a little bit. So, for example, yes. we start talking about the, the, the journey at Paddle, which must be fascinating. How many years were there? Four years, did you say? Four years. So that was from what what level of investment to, was it Series D? Yeah, um, yeah I just done Series A after I joined. Okay. Uh, about six months after I joined, and I know that because... That year, the business forgot to run as a business. It ran as a recruitment agency and it was just Ooh. busy putting kind of, you know, people on boards. And I was the last of my team to be hired. It had grown from Harrison, the founder, doing the sales to a now a team of 30 SDRs, AEs, solution architects. We had this concept called LDR, lead development reps, which was a horrific job. People just kind of putting website domains into, into Excel and considering whether we could sell them or not. Um, and, 
and trying to and, and the business for the first time in in the past four years hadn't grown by triple digits and and kind of the investors were panicking because they'd just done a, a sizable series a and the business had kind of i mean not plateaued it's beginning to contract in terms of you know net dollar retention particularly um and so i was brought on at the end of that hiring cycle to get back to triple digit growth again oh wow no pressure no pressure again so you were the, there I, from I a to d was it was that it i was there from a to d absolutely there was uh b round c round a mezzanine round somewhere in the middle of those two and, oh and a d God. round as well as the acquisition of profit well um okay. which happened about six months prior. so do you mind telling us a little bit like maybe let's cover them a little bit because i think what i like with sales therapy is if there's a person who's going from a to b b to c c to d in your shoes in those roles right now like i'd like them to hear from the men who did it like what were the highlights the lowlights the challenge the focus how did it change let's start diving into that a little bit if you don't mind yeah i think the first thing was to not think about these stages as milestones mm. or as end points they were injections on our journey to help us in that stage of growth i'd argue some may have better been avoided in hindsight i mean we now know about kind of the overvaluation of the vc world um and i think a lot of it it feels like just automatic muscle memory of, hey, well, I need to go from my series A through to series D to series E to exit. And, and that's the route. Yeah. I think for me, again, one of one of my strengths has always been I look at things differently. And, you know, I remember when I was an AE inheriting a, an account that a previous AE had worked. And my initial thought was I can do this better. And Great. I think, you know, that's quite misplaced, obviously, but um, it is something that is in, an intrinsic confidence inside of me. So I I kind of put the, the the fundraising to a side, of course, working closely with our CFO, knowing how much runway we had, knowing how much budget we had, knowing what our revenue had to be to, to kind of make sure we had enough runway was very important. Um, but I think it's the same thing regardless of where you are in stage. And, you know, the stage of business that I typically like to join is when the business is transitioning away from a founder-led sales motion. Mm -hmm. When you've got a founder who's, who's kind of developed a, a kind of a notion of product market fit, has got kind of a bunch of clients on board. And, you know, again, Harrison, the founder, done a, an incredible job of really kind of working through at that time what was the kind of the Mac and PC app development community, um, which was Paddle's ICP. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the, the mandate was clear to me, which was to grow, get us back to triple digit growth. It wasn't a get us to 100 million in five years. It wasn't get us to Series D. It was growth. And ultimately, if you grow and you grow healthily, then generally a lot, a lot of the other problems look after themselves. So how do we do that? Well, again, it always starts with what is your total addressable market? Who are we targeting? What's your ICP? Um, how many are there? What's the competitive landscape? And building that go-to-market. When I joined, we changed the ICP. We changed the go-to-market away from what was kind of a PC and app development community of, of downloadable software into the world of SaaS. And that was the first transition that we did away from this downloadable market. And, and again, it wasn't a very difficult decision. I was being told time and time again, we didn't have product market fit for SaaS. I looked at our customer, um, our, our customer base and I realized 20, 25% of our existing customers were SaaS businesses. And so I turned to my colleague, the VP of CS, I said, we must have a major churn problem coming up. And she replied, well, we, we have never churned a customer. So yeah. I said, do we know? 
product market fit is like you know we're just not targeting them but we do have a a, a fit for what they need there so we really focused on that and, and my the first thing that i really focused on is is about repeatability you know again the story of paddle is wonderful the proudest data point that i have on that story is we grew to that revenue size and through all that funding with 150 people we, we, we were not a big company. We did it very lean. We were always looking at ways to automate things and create efficiencies, even though we weren't thinking like most businesses are today, which is about margin and profitability. We yeah. were always thinking, and this is something Christian, the CEO, really embedded in us, which is we don't celebrate hiring. Hiring means it's a failure on us that we were unable to do this with the resources we had available to us beforehand. We, we looked as every additional headcount as a failure on our part to be able to solve a problem through automation um, and, and efficiency. How interesting. Wow. Okay. So, and again, fast forward to where I am now in a bootstrap business, it's, it's really kind of created that DNA of, of trying to figure things out without throwing money or people at the problem. That must be a yeah. very fresh way of thinking for a lot of people whose default was just throw money at problems and... Even in life, I think a lot of us are trying to throw money at problems. I have a specific yeah. question. What I'm fascinated is I always, I really like the idea that you explain it. I didn't see it as like, you know, A to B to B to C, whatever. It was an injection into what we're trying to achieve. That's all good. But the expectation of your investor changes and the expectation of your team, probably like how they see success, that changes as well, doesn't it? Like yeah. how... You view like, you know, a, I don't know, 10K account was a big win in the beginning and now like a 2 million account is not, I, I don't know, I'm making up. Like were the deal sizes getting larger, brand names getting fancier, sales cycles longer and yeah. how was that impacting yeah. you and the team? So again, I, th I think it had helped that would really drained dry our, our serviceable addressable market, i.e. the downloadable software markets. We'd, we'd been through it for the last four years. And that was a big reason why, why, why um, growth was plateauing. Mm -hmm. I think by going after this new market, we had to really think about segmentation. Mm. And one of the first things that I did was, was, and again, this ties into the other strategy of mine, which I'll touch on in a second, but I split the team out into a kind of an SMB and mid-market team. Mm -hmm. um, Two reasons. One is both required a different touch, a different approach, different value proposition, um, and of course, different expectations in terms of predictability, sales cycles, um, kind of cap capitality, et cetera. But the other, the other part for me, which was perhaps much, much more important, which was I, my, you know, my playbook is around hiring very inexperienced people, putting them in on the ground floor, which is typically kind of the SDR, what I call the academy, seeing who swims and sinks, investing in the people who are swimming and building a career path for them within the business so that you can go from SMB SDR to mid-market SDR to SMB AE to mid-market AE and you are progressing through kind of the seniority or, or, or kind of the size and, and value you're delivering back to the business there. Um, so I, I'm a big fan of creating these career paths because people are the business and the business is the people. Um, well, that's very difficult as opposed to hiring and firing. Or actually, to be honest, I, I'm being the devil's advocate. I completely agree with that because if you go through the hustle of hiring once, why try to, you know, replace that person? Just retain them and improve them and whatever. But yeah, most people but prefer the other. Yeah, but again, don't be so wed to that philosophy. I, you know, we bake into our model that 30% of SDRs we hire won't make it past six mm -hmm. months. 
Um, you know, and it, you, whilst you should always be improving your processes for kind of attracting and, and identifying talent, you're going to get it wrong. Um, it's, it's going to happen. But for me, the risk to the business, the cost to the business, the risk to the other people was much lower if you got it wrong at the ground level than hiring senior AEs, mm. which again, I learned, I did. I hired tenured seasoned AEs on top salaries who, who completely failed in the business. Um, you know, it was, they were coming from Why? a very kind of mature, predictable mm. environment to almost chaos at Paddle. Um, and I needed a certain type of person to cut through a lot of the noise and it took me a while to figure that out. Oh, I love that. Can you tell us what's the type of person that cuts through the noise? Um, well, it's easy to describe. It's hard to identify. Okay. Um, and it's probably still a work in progress. But I, I think for me, it's somebody who's comfortable with change. In fact, I'd go even further and say somebody who thrives with change. Wow. Um, and doesn't, and somebody who's not scared to try things and to shine a light on their success and failure. Somebody who is intrinsically commercial, has a commercial mindset. They're not just there to follow a playbook. They understand the value prop proposition. They understand the pain. Um, and then somebody who is obsessed with growth. And I don't mean somebody who's always pushing you for promotion. I mean, that's part and parcel of what they're going to be doing and asking for, for more money but actually somebody who really takes it upon themselves to learn to develop and not just ex exclusively reliant on their manager or their HR team to develop and train them. So, you know, the types of people that will send me a podcast or an article on LinkedIn at 11 o'clock at night, because naturally that's what they like listening to and want to develop themselves. People who harass me for books they should read or, or podcasts they should listen to. That's the type of behavior that for me not only says, you thrive in this environment, but you're actually probably a future leader that I need to invest in as this business scales, you're going to play a more and more important part there. I agree. I agree. And I think I, I want to be with people who are curious, interested, you know, harass exactly in that word. Like, like this is the drive that I get from talking to my head of content on a daily basis. You know, this is the drive that I get from talking to a client success person. Let's try yeah. to figure things out together, curious, interested, excited. But then, of course, work-life balance, whatever, like it becomes blurry. Like, what would you say to somebody who says, listening to this podcast and saying, like, why am I sending you a link at 11? That's my me time. You know, just, just to be, again, devil's advocate a little. I think two things about it. Firstly, what I mean by that is, and I, maybe this is wrong, and I, I have been shouted down. We've spoken about networking groups before. I've been kind of attacked on these networking groups, but... I like those people who choose their me time to be their own, the same as their professional development. The same way when I was a kid and I was looking through the pages and the times and the share pages, that wasn't work. I was curious. I was interested. I was growing. I was learning about businesses and ownership. Um, and I think if you can find those people who are truly inspired and yeah. energized yeah. by the work that they're doing, how lucky are they? Yeah. They don't look at this like, oh, this is work time. This is me time. Yeah. Now, there's a different challenge because they don't know when to stop and they need to be told, go take some holiday. Stop talking to me. Stop messaging me. You're going to a beach for two weeks and I don't want to hear from you. And it's, it's yeah. really tough to send them away. But again, that's... You're sick. You job, need to take got... time off. <laughs> yeah, I can see your performance is, is waning. I can see that your energy is draining. I can see your eyes are bloodshot. Stop, you know, stop and take some time. But this whole kind of work-life balance argument, again, for me, we're in a startup. We're not predictable. We don't know what's going to happen. And yeah, the people who kind of do not just kind of the clockwork, because that was my life in law. 
Yeah. My life in law was the people who were there or seen to be there the latest are promoted. Didn't matter how good you were. Yeah. But I do recognize in a startup environment when there's so many jobs to be done, people who step out of their lane and into other responsibilities and seize vacuums of kind of responsibility, they are the ones who go further. Yeah. Does that mean that the people who don't will be fired? No, of course yeah. not. I, I like to talk about my, my best friend. He, he, him and I started our sales careers at the same time. He is, he is an AE. Why is he any worse than me? No, he's, he's actually a much better salesperson than me and probably a much, much better manager and leader than I am, but he doesn't mm. want it. He, wants he might be making more money at times as well. <laughs> with he's, he's, making a ton of money. he's making a ton of money and he's, and he's happy and he goes out with his wife every evening and he puts his kids Love to it. bed every day. Love it. And that's the life he has chosen and I only have respect for him. Yeah, but he's not working in a startup that's trying to get to a hundred million dollars in the first five years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Choices, I completely. I mean, yeah, there, there could be a whole episode from from this. So coming today, let's talk about some of the current issues you tackle, Adam. You're building and scaling the business, and you're doing it all bootstrap, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, can you correct. tell us a little bit about yeah. that experience? Now you don't have that VC pressure or whatever. Like, does that defer in any way? Well, we talked we talked about hairlines before, um, mm. so I call this kind of this is my PC hairline, this is my bootstrap hairline. Um, yeah, I mean, look, when I left Paddle, I, I deliberately chose to go into a, a non VC backed world for several reasons. Partly because I saw the the storm clouds forming, but also I wanted mm. to test myself. I've never worked in a bootstrap environment, only in a VC backed environment, and um, I wanted to see if I could do it again without, you know, the the bags of cash available to you. Is there pressure? Yeah, we are much poorer than VC-backed businesses, but our ambition is just as just as high. Um, you know, I am looking to grow the business triple every single year. And, well, you know, we've, we've done very well up until now. But yeah, the pressure comes in that we can't throw money at problems. We've got to think very, very cautiously about our budgets. We are forced to think about new ways to do the same things. Um, we've come up with some great innovations that have enabled us to do so. You, you, you thrive in... An incredibly crowded market space in terms of competition, you know, gaining market share, etc. That must be all, all very hard. Are those things that are sort of top of head for you or what's top of head for you at the moment? Absolutely. Well, growth is growth, right? But I think, again, from my experience and what I'm seeing in the marketplace, a lot of our competitors are very much focused on logo acquisition as, as, their, as their growth driver. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, the, the, the employer of record space, it's a very simple model. It's a monthly recurring fee for every employee that you, are, that you ask us to employ or, or, or mandate us to employ on your behalf. Meaning, actually, we don't have to spend so much on top of funnel logo acquisition if we do really well by our customers. Because if we choose the right customers and do well by them, they're going to grow and they're going to put more employees onto our platform. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to churn because we provide a great service. Um, and therefore we need to really focus on, well, what do we need to do to really make sure our customers are happy? Mm -hmm. So, you know, coming from a sales background to now more of a kind of a broader revenue leadership background, I've really de-emphasized the point on, of sales. Look, sales and new logos are really important, but actually finding the right customer, in fact, I'll put it this way, 70% of our revenue growth this year is, is expected to come from existing clients, not from oh, new wow. logos. Okay. And that means I can, I can structure the team based around that model. I can structure the team to be really focused on support, on success. Our sales team is very small. Our SDR team, you know, we're very, very selective and very intense in terms of training and promotion there. 
Um, but it really helps us kind of think about the, the capital allocation within the business to achieve our outcomes there. As opposed to, again, probably being a bit thoughtless in previous roles where we're like, well, we need a big sales team. And the more sales team we have, the more customers we have. Therefore, yeah. we need a big success team and a big support team. And actually asking yourself why, what are we trying to achieve? And is there another way to do this? I think is a really important way to do it. Okay. So what's the journey of the buyer like from the moment that you have first contact with them? How does it work for your buyers? Well, again, I think we've got to be looking at, you look at the market, the EOR market, and there's some very, very big players out there who've grown very, very large over the last few years, taken on a, a ton of funding um, and have really kind of accelerated away. But by and large, and I know the model did exist pre-pandemic, it was the pandemic that gave birth to yeah, this industry. Yeah, yeah. The pandemic that massively accelerated. So no one's really got more than four years experience and people are still figuring stuff out. Um, for me, a small business is much better at figuring things out than a big business. We're able to pivot, we're able to, to, to kind of uh, iterate faster. Um, and so I think as a result of being last to market, we've been able to learn what matters and what doesn't. You know, and, and so when I joined the business, this was what was plaguing me when I joined, which is why are we different? You know, our metrics were absurd and we'd been trading for 12 months. We'd already passed kind of the, the million dollars mark within the first 12 months. So pretty insane from a standing start there. Um, but I didn't understand what is different about our offering. Mm -hmm. um, and I spoke to a lot of people in my network, a lot of our clients, as any good kind of revenue leader will do when they first start and say, what do you like about us? What do you dislike? And it just kept coming back to the same point that really the people that pay the bill, the employer who is our client, doesn't really mind which EOR they use. Um, what they really care, their measure of success is, what is the experience for my employee? How does my employee feel about you? Because again, we're talking to HR folk who understands that the best businesses are built on the best people. Um, and if you look after the people, the business will is a lot easier to be successful. So what's, and I looked around the market, no one is focusing on the employee. No one is focusing on the employee experience from, from candidacy to offboarding that experience should be premium. Why? Because it reflects on their employer mm -hmm. and, of course, reflects the sentiment of the employer to us. So we are what's called the first employee-first EOR. We are absolutely obsessed with our service level, our response time, our accuracy of payments, and less so in terms of acquiring these big, sexy, kind of shiny logos. So what does that mean in terms of, I get all of that, fine but at the end of the day you still have a buyer in front of you which you need to impress and i'm imagining if i am an hr or recruitment or employee engagement whatever you know a lot of admin a lot of tasks a lot of complexities and then there's these five guys pitching to me similar products etc so you explain the value to the end users and i'm sure they buy part of it but how do you make life easier for the buyer like do you provides for example does your client success come early into the conversation do you run demos and then two weeks later somebody randomly <laughs> follows up like what what is what is that process because i've had a lot of experience with eor providers that's actually where i'm trying to come yeah. from in a very political way and some of that was yeah. really frustrating as a buyer so how do you differentiate yeah. in that experience you provide well i think we we, we deliver a customized process for each buyer Mm -hmm. So 
and, and again, people are probably thinking, well, the, hold on, that's not scalable. You can't customize mm -hmm. every single sales journey. Yeah, yeah. But actually, the, the, the key to it is identifying which accounts we want to target in the first place. Mm -hmm. And again, part of the blessing and the curse of the EOR market is our, our TAM, our total addressable market, is infinite. I mean, it's, it's, it's the whole world, every company of every size, every country who is open to hiring remote businesses and not setting up entities there. But that's also a bit of a curse because if we think about scale, it's a, or, you know, crossing the chasm, which is probably kind of the most famous book around this, which is focus on a, on a, on a clear segment, absolutely nail that segment and expand yeah. out from there. So we've, we've really kind of done a lot of work in the first 12 months that I've been here, which is around defining our ICP, evolving from total addressable market to serviceable addressable market to serviceable obtainable market and identifying a bunch of accounts that fit what we're trying to do. And again, you know, when I joined, with, with, with all due respect, we were scraping lists from Crunchbase and LinkedIn and just kind of outreaching spray and pray. Yeah. But we're doing a lot of intelligence now and we're working with some really, really intelligent partners to use data, be that kind of technographic, firmographic, demographic data to say, can you find every single company that fits within RICP? Yeah. We're predominantly at the moment focusing our outbound efforts on European, African and Middle Eastern businesses, sub two and a half thousand employees um, for a whole bunch of reasons. But predominantly is that's where we believe we can provide the best service. There's no kind of time zone issues for us. Mm -hmm. um, and we're able to support from a language perspective. Um, but ultimately, identifying which of those companies that fall into that, that bracket are currently hiring remote roles. Mm. What roles are they hiring for? And how can we differentiate ourselves in terms of our approach there? Once we've got that hook, we introduce an AE very quickly onto the call. We need to determine and work with our prospect to determine what are the criteria you're going to be using? Because like you, presumably, you're not just looking at us. Mm -hmm. um, we don't own the segment. So what are the criteria? Well, price is always one of them. Um, and I never like kind of going to battle on price. Price is not a defensible value proposition, mm -hmm. especially when you're competing with, with businesses who've got much deeper pockets than you do. Um, and product. Our product is great. It's slick. It's very easy to use, but it doesn't have all the bells and whistles and, you know, all the, all, all the cool stuff that others do. So what are the other criteria? So this is when we work with our prospects to really say, well, if you're, if, if you're looking at the same product and the same price, how are you going to decide? And this is where we really start to, it's almost challenge a sale methodology to say, this is what we think your criteria should be. And this is why it matters to you. Oh, I love that. All right. And then it's on the sales rep to A, get buy-in from the prospect that these are the criteria that matter to them. And then to prove that we are able to deliver against those criteria. And I think salespeople need to recognize they're not trusted. Right? People do not trust salespeople. People know we are paid commission. People know we are paid to close deals, which is why, again, a great salesperson will look at the resources and people around them and say, what is the best approach for this deal? Is it bringing CS in? Is it bringing an executive sponsor? Is it running a product demo? Don't just take my word for it. Speak to one of our clients. I'm not into American sports that much, but I always call the, the, the AE the quarterback. You're not <laughs> going to score the touchdown necessarily, but you're going to orchestrate the play. And that's what, that's what I'm kind of really pushing our team to do. Love all of the above. I mean, there's so much to deep dive into. I think we'll need another show at some point, Adam, to, to dive into some of the specifics that you covered today. But in a nutshell, standing out from the crowd is impossible. If, I mean, it's not difficult anymore. It's impossible. So how do you make that impossible the possibility? It's by defining 
who you're going to sell to and sticking to your guns, saying like, this is my ICP, this is the best service that I will provide to them and I will just make sure that I can provide to them. That's why you narrow down the ICP and you give a stellar service as far as I understand. I'll challenge that a little bit, Alpa, which is sticking to your guns, I think, is a very high risk strategy. Okay. Um, I think it's actually having the vulnerability to say, how do we get better at identifying ICP? That's it's a never way. a job that you're finished, mm. right? Um, and so what, what are the leading indicators? What are the lagging indicators to set up to say, are we targeting the right company with the right message at the right time? And how do I continuously test and prove a hypothesis against that? Because if I can create a demo or a first meeting uh, with 4% of the accounts that I distribute to my SDR team, how do I get that to 4.5%? Yeah. Because everything's staying equal. If I can increase that rate, then from a revenue perspective, if conversion rates stay the same and ACV stay the same, that's a huge impact. So our revenue operations team and myself and the sales leadership and the SDR leadership are obsessed with that metric. We call it account to demo, which is of the accounts distributed, how many first calls do we get in and how do we improve that? It's actually one of the key metrics we're measuring our SDR team individually on, not on the gross number of meetings they create, but of the accounts we've distributed, how many how many first calls have they got from those? Excellent. Well, our time is coming to the end and I haven't been a good therapist today to cut us on time, but I'm gonna do this anyway. As a closing remark, I have two questions. One, I'm gonna ask your closing remark on you know, what you think you want talk to our audience about. And the second one, um, in terms of our space, buyer enablement, digital sales, sales rooms, and your team have used Flow, have experienced it themselves. Like, how do you see this space? What's your experience of it? If you have any, um, yeah, I wanna get your perspectives on those two. Um, so I'll answer the first question first, which is, this is a tough job. Hmm. This is not a job that you can just turn up do say a few things and, and hope to, to do well in it. You, you've really got to commit to this. And it is hard. It is wrought with failure. But if you are open to growing and open to really kind of developing yourself, the sky is the limit. And you can have a very, very exciting career, um, you know, and a very lucrative career if, if you follow that. But don't don't be too proud to say this isn't for me. And don't be too proud to do it if you're not enjoying it. Because a salesperson is a rare breed, and I, I truly believe you should enjoy the hours in which you're working. Okay, not every day. You'll have bad days. You'll have bad hours. But by and large, enjoy your job. Um, it, it makes it so much easier to do a job when you are enjoying the day. In, day yeah, you can't do it any other way and be successful anyway. So, yeah, the job will tell you. <laughs> I know that's really basic, but I just think people forget that all too often and try yeah. to kind of project they want to be and, and work backwards from there rather than enjoy the ride because the ride will be over at some point and then what? <laughs> um, buyer enablement. It's a really interesting topic and it's one of those kind of really fast moving segments and industries that our buyers are becoming wiser. There is a huge amount of resource that every buyer has available to them that they never had before. Um, and I think you know, every business should be leveraging opportunities to create those efficiencies, to create a better experience for their buyer, but not at the cost of human relationships. It should be there to serve the human relationship oh, rather completely. than to replace. And I think, again, people have this over-reliance on technology rather than understanding how to deploy and enable themselves with it so that they are better at their job. So, you know, Flora is a wonderful solution. Um, as are all the other kind of great new technologies that have kind of entered the, the sales uh, tech and, you know, understanding that whole kind of ecosystem. 
the key really is, unless the bots come tomorrow and replace us all, which, you know, one day mm. they will, obviously, humans still like to buy from humans. And, and I, I'm going to kind of stick to my guns on that one, despite saying that we should never stick to our guns <laughs> and say authentic relationships, integrity and credibility cannot be replaced by technology, but can be enhanced by technology if you're using it appropriately. Can be enhanced, can be empowered, can be enabled. You know, if you have a sales companion like a floater or whatever, that's just a better way of selling, but it's not going to replace you as the human uh, because, you know, you will build the relationship that's based on trust with your buyer. That was a wonderful show. Thank you so much, Adam. I think it's been one of the longest recordings I had because I'm it was just, no, don't apologize. It's, it's my job to cut and I'm never good at it because when I'm hearing like good stuff, I don't feel like cutting anybody. But um, thank you for no, being you. here with us, Adam. And if you enjoy the show, this was yet another episode of Sales Therapy. You can subscribe to us on YouTube and your favorite podcast platform. And we'll be having plenty more conversations with Adam, with Adam in the coming, I think, months um, and years, hopefully. And thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Bye, Alpha. Take care.